It's good to be back with you guys. This time last week I was sitting in an uncomfortable chair in the hospital, blessed, of course, to have a new baby, but uh, ready to get out of there and get home. I missed being with y'all, and uh, we should see the little baby girl here soon. We need to finish up the book of Numbers and then start Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is definitely a two-class topic. We need to talk about this guy Balaam in Numbers before we move on. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Lord, it's good to be here with the saints to study the Bible this morning, to look at the Old Testament, to see your fully inspired, fully inerrant word, to learn from it. And I pray that you would help us as we study it. Help us to remember what we learn. Help us to interpret it correctly. And teach us your ways, O Lord, from beginning to end, so that we might live a life pleasing to you. We treasure your holy book here. We, we love the scriptures. And I pray that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of you through the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. So we talked about numbers. Numbers is a lot of grumbling from God's people. Numbers is a lot of punishment. So this won't be on the one that just went out. The one that just went out is Deuteronomy. So Balaam. Balaam is this prophet mentioned in uh, Numbers 22. And uh, the question that we need to ask is, is he a true prophet or not? Is he a prophet of the, of the God, our God, Yahweh? That's the, the personal name of God. Is he a false prophet or it does it not really even matter? I mean, when I can't decide between two choices, you just you know, do like a lot of Bible scholars. It doesn't matter. Or it's both, which is kind of an easy way out. You know, if, if you're an interpreter, you just say it doesn't matter. As a preacher, I can't really say that. Uh, if it's God's word, it, I think it does matter. It does matter. And the New Testament has something to say about it. So let's look at, uh, let's look at Balaam here. Go to Numbers 22. And I just want to survey quickly his, his story. So remember, they're, they're ready to go into the land. And as they're going into the land, the... Uh, Different people are battling against them. And in this case, it's the people of Moab who have come out to sort of check out the people of Israel. And they're scared of Israel. So Numbers 22, the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, opposite Jericho. So they're right across the river. They're right across the the area that God promised Abraham. And he's told Moses that he would take God's people there to set up the nation in the land. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Balak's the king of Moab, and he has seen what happened to the Amorites who fought against Israel. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. Remember, three to five million people, likely. Uh, Two million, just men. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, our people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land. And they are living opposite me. Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balaam's some sort of prophet. He's some sort of seer. He's some sort of, we might call a sorcerer, magician type of guy. 
and uh, he's out for hire. You can just hire Balaam, and he'll curse somebody, and it seems like, you know, it seems like uh, it, it comes to pass every time he does it. And if he blesses people with his prophecies, then it seems to work out. So uh, Balak's got a solution. He's going to hire Balaam to do the work for him so he doesn't have to fight, lose his soldiers, or lose his land. So the other elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed. So it's not just Moab, but also Midian. Uh, with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam. I repeated Balak's words to him. He said to them, spend the night here. Then God comes to him in verse 9. God comes to Balaam and he speaks to him. Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor. So he tells God who they are. God says to him in verse 12, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So God's talking directly to this guy. And uh, Balaam arose in the morning. He says he can't go. Go back. Um, so this goes on kind of back and forth. Then in verse 22, he's going to go anyway. So if you look at Numbers 22, 22, um, God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. So you probably know this Bible story. The angel's in the way. The donkey stops that he's riding on. Uh, Balaam can't see the angel. It says, uh, when the donkey saw the angel in verse 23, the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword. So it's, it's the angel of the Lord, which probably, I'm thinking that's the pre-incarnate Christ. You might recall our study we've done in the past on the angel of the Lord. This isn't just an angel. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of Yahweh. He's standing in the way. The donkey can't get through this little gap probably in the, in the wall, in the fence. And uh, verse 24, Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey sees the angel, he won't go. And then what happens? You know, Balaam, Balaam starts hitting his uh, donkey, basically swatting him. And verse 24, The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said, so it's a female donkey, to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord. So, that's an interesting story. Sometimes people use this story right here to say, you know, God can do whatever he wants today. God, John, you have a prophecy day? Stand up, John, give us the prophecy. Oh, you think the world's going to end tonight? And then tomorrow it doesn't end. Well, John, God can do anything he wants because he spoke through a donkey. This is the only case that happens in the Bible. It's for a specific purpose. Let's not use it out of context to support something going on today. But anyway, back to the subject here. Um, every time... Balaam tries to curse Israel. What happens? Who knows the story? He blesses them. He ends up, the words that come out end up being a blessing. And they, they come true. You know, Balak, the king, gets really mad. How dare you? I can't believe you. And uh, he continues to just end up blessing the people of Israel. Let's skip over to chapter 31, verse 16.
Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So there's a different mention of Balaam. This is not Balaam prophesying for, for the king of Moab. But what happened at Peor? We discussed it last week. Remember, that's when they're, they're worshiping false gods. They're, they're about to go into the promised land and they take on the false gods of Moab. They bring in the women. They're doing sexually immoral things. And you recall Phineas runs the one guy through with a spear. Man and woman together. And God stops the plague that he had unleashed upon the camp. But it tells us here in verse 16, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation. So Balaam's for hire. Balaam gets hired by the people of Peor. He tells them what? I know how to trip, trip them up. I can't prophesy against them because God won't let me. But we can, we can assume here that Balaam told them how to really trip up Israel. Let your women go up to the camp. And these guys are going to come out. They're going to take these women. And they're you know, going to treat them as their wife and, and do whatever they want with them. And then your gods can be brought into the camp. That will trip them up. Now we don't see that spelled out, but we see in verse 16 that must be the case. Because the sons of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, were tripped up, were trespassing against the Lord in the matter that happened at Peor. So the plague was among the congregation. That's the last time we see Balaam in Numbers. So is he a true prophet? Going back to chapter 22, some say that he is. Because, you know, God spoke to him. God talked to him. God spoke through him, in a sense, when he prophesied a blessing on Israel. And it even says, he claims to be a prophet of God, doesn't he? 22.8, he said to them, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. Then God came and speaks to him. Uh, Let's look at verse 18-20. through Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything small or great, contrary to the commandment of the Lord, my God. So he uses God's personal name there, Yahweh, which is all caps in our translation, most translations. Who uses the personal name of God? Well, it's usually only God's own people. That's God's personal name. And uh, the Gentiles don't use that name usually. And he says uh, in verse 19, Now please stay here. I'll find out what else the Lord will speak to me. And then God comes and speaks to him. So based on that, people say, this is a true prophet of God. He just stumbled. He just had some sin in his life. You know, it's a true prophet. Um, the other option, I think, the only other option would be a false prophet. Where do we get the idea that he's a false prophet? Well, I just read to you at the end of Numbers, what's he doing? He's telling people how to make Israel sin, how to tempt them. Numbers uh, thirty-one sixteen. Let's go forward to Joshua, though. We get more on Balaam. He's, he's all the way through the Bible. He is an example for us all the way. Joshua 13. So now they're coming in, and they are conquering. They are defeating all these people, these Gentiles in the land. 
In Joshua 13, verse 22, the sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor. That's the same guy. He's the son of Beor. Balaam, the son of Beor, mentioned in Numbers. They killed him. He's the diviner. They killed him with the sword among the rest of their slain. So they go into this city, Beth Peor. They killed him. Why'd they kill him? Because he's a false prophet. In other words, he's a, he's a false uh, diviner, a sorcerer. He uh, worked against Israel. But didn't he bless them? Yeah, God made him bless them. But he also didn't really want to. God made it happen like that. He didn't choose to do it. He, he told the king, Balak, he said, Oh yeah, that's my God. But if we choose, uh, let her be here. Then he's just saying that for the money. Of course it's my God. He'll listen to me. He talks to me all the time. Give me your money and I'll, I'll do what you say. But let's go forward to the New Testament. We're not done with Balaam in the Old. All the way towards the end of your Bible, Second Peter. And he's mentioned in Second Peter. He's mentioned in Jude. And he's mentioned in Revelation, right? Near the end here in these books. What does it tell us here about Balaam? Second Peter 2, 15. False teachers are forsaking the right way. They've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So he, he's like these false teachers in Second Peter that Peter's talking about. These teachers in Christianity, they're false, and they just want the money. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about God. They just want the money. That's like Balaam, the son of Beor. So we know it's the same guy. He loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So he was rebuked by an animal, and that's about the most humiliating thing that could happen. Jude, verse 11. Also dealing with false teachers, Jude is speaking out against them. He's speaking, we've been reading this uh, book of Jude as a, as a family and family worship, and you know, if, if a, a phrase like go home is offensive to people today, just read the book of Jude. I mean, he just goes on, phrase after phrase, calling these false teachers out, calling them by name. And in verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and, uh, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So he just lumps Balaam in with these other sinful Actions where people suffer, where people are punished by God. Revelation two fourteen is the last mention. Jesus is speaking here to the church in Pergamum. But I have a few things against you because you have uh, there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit acts of immorality. What do they do? What Israel do in Peor? They worship false gods, they, they, they sacrifice to idols, and they committed sexual immorality. And that's what's going on in Pergamum. There's a problem there. There's this false teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's these teachers who come in and say it's no big deal. You can do what you want. As a Christian, you've been saved. Now you can just go and live how you want. And Jesus says, I have this against you. This is wrong. It's like Balaam. He put a stumbling block out. So what do we do with Balaam? Is he a true prophet, a false prophet, or it doesn't really matter? Well, if we're studying the Bible, it matters. So we're going to cross off C. We might not be able to figure it out, but it always has a... It matters. So we'll X that one out. You got the answer. 
That's right. B. Good job, Mike. B, a false prophet. Why is he a false prophet? Well, because all these other, especially the New Testament, calls him that. You don't want to go in that way, in that error, and he's compared to a false teacher. So how can God speak to him? Well, God can use a donkey. That's the point. God can do things like that because he's sovereign even over false prophets. Just like in Kings, when uh, the prophets sometimes say and do things that they think is great for them, but it's actually working to further God's purposes. Um, If you were just to trace out in chapter 22, you would see that every time the writer of Numbers, Moses, speaks of Balaam and God, it's using the term God, Elohim. It's only when Balaam himself talks of God that he uses Yahweh. So sometimes that's a hint. The writer saying, yeah, Balaam might say this is his personal God, but really it's not. It's just a general God that's out there for Balaam, just one of the many gods. So there's Balaam. I'm going with B. I think that's the best based on the New Testament. Let's look at one last passage here in the New Testament. It talks about numbers. I think it summarizes for us the lesson of numbers. What's the lesson we're supposed to learn with all of these numbers listed, all of the tribe and all their grumbling and what happened with Israel? What's the lesson? Don't grumble. Don't sin. So Paul uses them as an example. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. That our fathers were all under the cloud. They were under the cloud. They were under the cloud that God, when he came down upon the mountain, the the pillar of cloud that traveled with him, they all passed through the Red Sea. They all all were baptized into Moses, which uh, means that they're immersed in the teaching of Moses and the law of God. They had all this blessing. They were in the cloud. They were in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Christ was there. God gave them everything. He brought them out of slavery. He brought them out of bondage. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. They died. Their bones were disintegrating in that time in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. Who's the us? New Testament Christians. Yeah, they happen for their sake, for God's sake in numbers, but it's also a lesson for us, he says. They actually happen. All those things happen to teach us a lesson in the future too, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Remember, they worshiped the golden calf. They worshiped false gods. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. They sat down to worship the the golden calf and then they stood up to commit sexual immorality. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. That's the sin of Peor. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they are written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. A lot of Christians falling today, professing Christians, stumbling. Seems like every week there's some famous 
preacher. Uh, this last week, it was a, a Christian comedian that I've seen videos. I mean, he's a funny guy, fallen, multiple adulterous affairs. And Paul says, take heed. You think you're a Christian? You think you're so strong? You better be careful. Those people in numbers, they thought they were blessed. God actually brought them through all these miraculous things. Turns out their heart wasn't right, and they fell. So check yourself, he's saying. And then verse 13 we're familiar with. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So check yourself, take heed, and remember God always provides a way out. You don't have to sin. I think we've heard that verse recently in a sermon from our guest preacher, but sometimes we forget the context of where it came from. So that's the lesson of Numbers. Any questions on Numbers before we look at Deuteronomy? It's a fun book. I recommend it. Recommend the whole Bible. Let's talk about Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is, is the most important book in the first five books of the Bible. What do we typically think is the most important book in the first five books as Christians? Genesis. This creation. And it is, it's hard to say it's more important than Genesis, but Genesis is the foundation. It tells us where man came from, it tells us how we fell into sin, it tells us about the flood. Tells us about Abraham, God's choosing of a people. Tells us about Joseph and Egypt and what God has done. You know what the, the Jews think the most important book is? What do you think they think the most important book is? Well, we're just looking at the first five books. Yeah, first five books. Leviticus. Leviticus. Why is Leviticus the most important to the Jewish people? All the laws, all the sacrifices. right? And they can't do all those sacrifices today, but that, that's where you're made right with God in their mind. And without that, it's they can't do it today, obviously. But There's no temple. Yeah, there's no temple. They would love for there to be a temple built again. There might be one in the future. But that's eschatology. So we'll get there. When we get to Ezekiel in this class, we will talk a lot about the temple and the future temple. Okay, um, Deuteronomy, though, really is a neglected book of the Old Testament, of the Pentateuch, the first five books. And about 50, 60 years ago, Christian scholars, true conservative biblical scholars, began to have a second look at Deuteronomy and how important it is. It's quoted a lot in the New Testament. I, I believe it's a second or third. I, I can't remember. Psalms is the f- most quoted in the New Testament. I think second is Deuteronomy and third is Isaiah. So it's extremely important. What do all the prophets in the Old Testament point people back to in Israel? The law in Deuteronomy. They're actually quoting and citing and alluding to Moses' speeches in Deuteronomy. This is where a a covenant is once again renewed with the people of Israel. And so many Christian scholars and one of my professors in seminary argue that of the first five, this is the most important Because everything else points back to it. It's God's holy law. It's God's holy law. So let's talk about Deuteronomy. In in Hebrew, where do we get the the names of the books usually in Hebrew? First word. Whatever the first word is in the book, that's what they call it. So 
Devarim means words. And if you look at our Bibles, look at look at Deuteronomy verse 1. These are the words. Of course, Western-minded people, we like a better title that summarizes it. And so when it got translated into Greek, it became Deuteronomion. What does that mean? Second law. Second law. Now this comes from a mistranslation, chapter 17. Look at it in our English Bibles, 1718. It's really a mistranslation, but then we're stuck with it, you know. You, you have Who's going to change the name of a book of the Bible that's been printed for a thousand years, right? 1718, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, talking about the king of Israel here, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. So the king's supposed to write out Deuteronomy. And ours says a copy because that's better to the, to the Hebrew. But when they were translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek back around 200 B.C., they thought this word Deuteronomion worked better. Because they thought, well, this is a second law. Moses gave the first law in Exodus. He's giving a second law in Deuteronomy. But it's really not a second law. It's the same law. It's just to a new generation. And so it's, it's kind of a mistranslation. We're stuck with it. It's not, not necessarily sinful. Remember, these titles are imposed by man. What matters is the text of Scripture. The chapter breaks are put in there by men. The verse breaks are put in there by men. And you probably won't believe me, but even these little subtitles in your Bible are put in there by editors. And that's okay. It helps us. I mean, if we didn't have verses, I couldn't even say, open your Bibles to 1718. When Bibles started to be printed, they put verses in there to help everybody who had a Bible. If nobody has a Bible, it doesn't really matter. I can just start quoting from Scripture. You guys got to trust me. But once the printing press comes out and they can just start printing these things off and everybody has one, well, I got to call out a verse so you can turn to it. And so that's fine. Uh, we stuck, we're stuck with Deuteronomy and it works. It's a second giving of the law. We'll say that. It's not a second law. It's a second giving of the law to a new generation. What happened to the first generation? Died in the wilderness. Why? They rebelled against God. They didn't believe the uh, Joshua and Caleb's um, report when they spied out the land. They feared the people instead of fearing God. So God said, okay, fine. You'll waste away and die. Second generation is now born. They're about to go in. Oh, they don't know the law. They weren't taught the law originally by Moses. It's time for Moses to start preaching. So that's what he's going to do. Who wrote it? Moses, unless you want to go liberal on me and say it was somebody else, but it's Moses. Uh, what's the theme, a short theme explanation of the law to a new generation? If we would expand that into a purpose statement, Moses exhorted, that means preached, is, exhorted Israel to be faithful to Yahweh and to the Sinaitic covenant, we say the Mosaic covenant, Israelite covenant, the one he gave in Exodus, so that she, Israel, might go in and possess the land, though he foretold that Israel would fail to obey. Isn't that God's sovereignty at work? Moses starts off saying, here's, here's what you need to know before you go in. And by the end of the book, he's saying, but someday you're going to turn away from God. 
He's going to take you away, then he's going to bring you back. Let's look at that in 1 5, chapter 1, verse 5. Let's just start from the beginning. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel, cross the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, so this dates it for us, it's the fortieth year when? After they left Egypt. On the first day of the eleventh month, so it's almost 41 years since they left Egypt. Moses is 120 years old. Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edre, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, So he's going to open up the law and teach them. Verse 6, The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites. So Moses starts preaching. What's the date? 40th year after they left Egypt. On the 11th month. So it's late in the year 1406 B.C. What's an outline? Well, Moses has made it nice and outlined for us. We don't have to argue too much about Deuteronomy and how to outline it because he's got these sermons, these discourses. The first one I just started for you there in in verse 6. It goes on through chapter 4. So I don't know how long that would take. You guys, you know, I think my sermons are long sometimes, but we got four chapters on Moses' sermon here. And uh, it looks back to the past. He starts off by telling them what God has done for them. Before they go into the land, this new generation needs to know what God has done for them. Today, you might say, your kids need to know what God has done for you. Your kids need to hear your testimony. Your kids need to hear the scripture, the gospel. And Moses is telling all of these young'uns that weren't there when he went up to Receive the Ten Commandments. They weren't there. They didn't see the Red Sea splitting. They didn't see the lightning and thunder on the mountain. And so he's going to remind them of what happened. Chapter 1. What has God done in guiding them from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea? Chapter 2 through 3. From Kadesh to Moab. And then chapter 4. In guiding them towards obedience. What has God done for them? He's done a lot for them. Second discourse, his second sermon. This is a really long sermon. Chapters 5 through 26. How long would that take? How long does that take to read 5 through 26? Does anybody, anybody test that out? Hector, how long does that take? I don't know. I didn't look it up. I'm sure somebody has measured it. This would be multiple hours, I'm guessing, sermon. And this is telling them what's happening right now in the present. What does God expect for them now? He's done all these things to save you. Now here's what he expects of you. Does that sound familiar for Christians? Christ has done these things and he saves you. Now live like it. Does that sound like the book of Ephesians? Of course, we haven't finished my preaching series through Ephesians, but first three chapters, doctrine. What God has done. 
second set of three chapters, four through six in Ephesians. Now, here's how you live. Walk accordingly. Well, that's Moses' major sermon here. What God expects of you. Chapters 5 through 11, it's all about the Ten Commandments, the the Decalogue. Uh, 12 through 16, it's an exposition of the statutes. And then uh, the next set is an exposition of judgments, civil and social. So let's just look at that, how he starts there. Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments. So where do you go to find the Ten Commandments in the Bible? Exodus what? 20? Is that the only place? Who says there's another place to find the Ten Commandments? Deuteronomy 5. You can find them two places in the Old Testament. Exodus 20, that's when Moses received the Ten Commandments. The tablets. And he throws them down and God makes them uh, again. And now he brings them back here and uh, says the same Ten Commandments here. In chapter 5, then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. It's not enough just to learn them and know them. You need to live them out. You need to observe them carefully. Now, he's not going to tell them, Oh, if you want to get right with God, you need to obey the law. Remember, they've already been physically saved out of Egypt. And what they say? You're our God. Thank you, God. You're our God. We will follow you. That's what Exodus was about. We will follow you. Show us how to worship you, Lord. Tell us how to obey you. People in the ancient world wanted to know how to obey their God. Not today. You know, people believe in whatever God they want. And they don't care. They don't want any kind of laws. But back then, everyone knew, you better know what your God expects. Because how do you know if you mess up? These pagan gods, if you walked in and did the wrong sacrifice, then people thought you'd be cursed for life. Your kids would be cursed. Your house would burn down. Everybody in the ancient world, whatever God they claimed to worship, they wanted to know how to worship him. And so God is saying, okay, you're my people. You love me. You say you love me. Here's how I expect you to live so that you can show everyone in the world I'm holy. And so in uh, verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant. That's Sinai, Horeb, Sinai. Two different names for a mountain. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. So he's saying, don't think that was just with the last generation. It wasn't like God made a covenant with them and now you can forget about it. It's with us even today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time. So even though this is a new generation, it's like they were there because the nation was there to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So I redeemed you. Now here's how I want you to live. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, 
For I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to those who love me and keep my commandments. So what's he saying there? First of all, don't worship anyone but the true God. You claim to be gods. Don't mix in any other worship. Don't worship your money. Don't worship your house. We could say today, don't put little statues in your yard of the saints and worship them. Don't put things around your neck that indicate some sort of other worship. Don't wear jewelry with, you know, people's image on there and pray to that. Don't pray to Mary. Don't worship leaders. Don't bow down to people on this earth as if they're your, your idols. Don't worship anything but God. And, well, they would say, first of all, they don't worship the saints. They just pray and bow down. They do, yeah. And, and in fact, some, some areas of Catholicism in the world, it's more blatant than other areas. Some areas, is, it's a little less obvious. And other areas... Here it is, you know, uh, statues of Mary get paraded through the streets and people bow down. But uh, what they do here, Mike, is they rearrange. I can't remember exactly how it works, but they rearrange the first and second commandment and smash it into one and basically say it's not prohibiting images. It seems clear to me, don't make any image or likeness of anything on earth and anything in heaven at all. If it's a dead person that goes to heaven, don't make an image. If it's a God you think is in heaven, don't make an image. Don't even make an image of God. Because remember what they did with the um, golden calf? Did they, did they build a calf and say, this is uh, Hathor, the god of Egypt? This is our god who brought us out of Egypt. Let's worship him. And you can see him right here. It looks like this calf. Because in their mind, God had an image. God says, no, no image. No images of God at all. That's why um, in Israel, even when the Romans conquered them and the Greeks conquered them, they would not allow images on their coins. Because all the kings and, and emperors are being worshipped by people. That's why the emperors put their image on the coin. Image meant worship. And Israel said, we cannot do that. And the emperors allowed that in, in Israel. They allowed them not to put any images on the coins. Mm-hmm. The crucifix with, with Christ hanging on it, it's, it's rather new in the history of Christianity. And it does. It is more of a focus of him still there and constantly being re-sacrificing the Mass. A really good uh, reading on that is J.I. Packer has this great book. It's called Knowing God. And it's a great book. It has different chapters on how to know God better. And he has a whole chapter on images. And he even discusses in there whether it's a good idea to have lots of images of Jesus. And how that can can make a person stumble. So I recommend that. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a, it's a good book to give anyone and read yourself. It uh, has a great section on this. And, and I think he talks about this commandment. Let's go on with the commandments. Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. 
This isn't just cussing. That, that's just flippantly using God's name wrongly. But this is swearing upon God. This is all the things that Jesus talks about. You know, they, they swore upon the temple. They swore upon the nation. And they had no intention of ever doing what they promised. But people would believe them. I swear in God's name, I will do this for you. Don't, don't, don't talk like that as a believer. It's not, it's not good. Um, and any other types of taking the Lord's name in vain that you could imagine there. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cow. I mean, God's taking this seriously. Not even the people traveling through your land who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. What's that about? What's the Sabbath day about? Rest. Rest. It's trusting God. I don't have to work on that day, he's, he's telling them. You don't need to work on that day because God will take care of you. If God can take care of you in the wilderness for 40 years, feeding you manna, giving you stuff to drink, don't you think if you take one day off? That's the principle here. That's the principle. Now, this was part of their worship in the Mosaic Covenant. You had to do that. As Christians, this is a controversial question. As Christians, do we have to recognize the Sabbath? Now, the, the Seventh-day Adventist says, yes, we do. Saturday is the day of rest and worship. Anybody know Seventh-day Adventists? Seventh-day Adventists, uh, they have lots of strange teachings. But one of them is, they, they won't always come out and say it, but they really do believe you are breaking God's commandment and you're probably not a believer if you worship on Sunday and don't take Saturday as your day of worship and your day of rest. Yes, lot, lots of, and you have to be vegetarian and I just would struggle, I think, with that. I like, I like meat too much, but um, they also believe the, the really old school ones, and there's still some of these, if you eat meat, you're breaking God's commandments and you're probably not a believer. But that's a different, that's an apologetics class. We'll, we'll come back and do that uh, someday. Talk about bad theology. I'd wanted to do that last summer. Maybe this next summer I'll do bad theology. A series of bad theology. So, um, Christians, uh, we worship on the Lord's Day. Mentioned two or three times in the New Testament. It's the first day of the week. Paul mentions the first day of the week. It's the day we worship. But notice, even in its commandments, it's not really talking here about even worship. I mean, they're expected to worship God all the time. But obviously, if you're taking the day off, you can spend more time focusing on God. We worship uh, on Sunday, and it's good. It's a good principle. It's built into creation in the New Testament, Old Testament, that you should take a day off, that you should. And hey, take Sunday off because you're already going to worship. It's a principle. If you don't take Saturday off, you're not going to be thrown in hell. We're not under the Mosaic Law. Did a whole class on that. We'll probably talk more about it next week. Christians are under the law of Christ. Very similar, but different in some ways. Jesus says how it's different in many places in the New Testament. Paul talks about it being different. James talks about it being different. Very similar. Same God, of course. Similar principles. As a principle, as a principle. My, my belief is that you should take it as a day of rest as a principle, but you're not necessarily cast into hell if you mowed your yard or had to go to work. 
Because why? Why is it important for believers to take Sunday off? What's the most important reason? Not because we're trying to follow the Mosaic Covenant, but what? Worship the Lord together as a body. Now, are we commanded to do that? Yes. It doesn't mean you can't, you know, be sick or miss or travel or whatever. But if we're commanded to be together and worship, and worship happens on the Lord's Day, that's the issue. Not so much make sure you don't do anything on Sunday. It's, it's, a, it's a different way of looking at the same principle. Yeah, and, and there was there was a, a Sabbath rest. God took a Sabbath rest, didn't he? What does that mean? Sabbath just means seventh day. Saturday, the, we get Saturday from the word Sabbath, which means seventh. So even God took a rest. The principle is rest. And then they are going to be like all the pagans in that time. They just work seven days a week. Back to the um, Ten Commandments here. Where are we? 13? 15. You shall remember that you were slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. See, the reason that they didn't want to do it had nothing to do with really their idea of worship. It was more of, we have to work every day to make money. We care about money. We care about wealth. We care about feeding our family. And we let's forget about God and just focus on those things. And that still happens today. That still happens today. It's really about trust. It's a commandment about trust. 16, honor your father and your mother. Paul's going to quote this in Ephesians 5 and 6. Sorry, 6. As the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged. So this is the promise Paul talks about. You're going to live a better life if you honor your mother and father. That's not prosperity gospel. It's just a general principle. The way God has designed it. That it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. So it's better for Israel if they obey their mothers and fathers because they're going to live longer in the land. Because what are they doing? They're not just obeying them, but they're obeying the Lord. If you care enough to obey your parents, then you usually care enough to obey the Lord. That's the idea there. And Paul picks this up in the New Testament. Clearly applies it to Christians. Kids, obey your parents in the Lord. Do it for the right reasons. It's in the Lord. It's in, it's in Christ. But it's good for you to do that. It's a blessing for you. It's not a promise that happens every time like that. God has his own purposes, his own designs. He will sovereignly work out things the way he wants. But in general, a people, we could say, even we could say America as a people will be blessed if children obeyed their parents. Especially if their parents are Christians, because what happens? You obey your parents, you're obeying the Lord, their parents are teaching you to obey me because the Bible says parents are teaching the Bible. It's sort of a continuous circuit there. Um, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This has to do with lying, gossiping, slandering. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, his female servant, his oxes, his things. Don't, don't covet in your heart someone else's stuff. Don't say... I want that. I'm going to take it. Don't steal. Don't rob. The government should also follow this and not steal from its people uh, so that the certain groups of people can take it and redistribute it. This is uh, talking about possessions. It's assuming each person has possessions and you're not to covet somebody else's stuff and try to take it from them. That's sinful. That's wrong. It's a heart sin first and then it gets acted out when you, when you take it. Okay, third discourse. He now moves to the future. The future. So uh, Deuteronomy 27. 
So a long sermon he gave on the law. That's the present. So first he started a short sermon on the past, a long sermon on the present, and then sort of a, a shorter one again on the future. What's God going to do? This is very interesting. Uh, I think we'll look at some of these interpretive issues. There's a big one in, in 29.1. But chapter 27, Then Moses, the elders of Israel, charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I commanded you. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives to you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, write on them. So he begins to tell them what they're going to do in the future, what they need to do. Skip over to chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab. Besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel said to them, You have seen all the Lord did before you. And now he goes on in this little chapter here, in chapter 29 and 30, to talk about they're going to be taken away someday when they turn away from God. And then chapter 30, they're going to be brought back to the land and restored. But look at that number, verse 1. The words which the covenant, what covenant is he talking about? Well, it's not the covenant that he made at Horeb and Sinai. It's a covenant in Moab. And we just spent the first few minutes of this section on Deuteronomy talking about how it's not a second covenant that he's giving here. It's not a second law. So what is this other covenant that he gave in the land of Moab? Is that just a way of saying God gave two covenants to Moses? Or is he pointing forward to a new covenant? We'll look at that next week. There's some other options we can give there too. But 27 through 30 is all about looking forward. Moses prophesies. Moses predicts. He tells them what's going to happen exactly. They're going to want a king. God's going to give them a king. You know, the king's going to cause all these problems. They're going to worship other gods. He's going to take them away. And then the last section is a historical appendix. It transitions into the next leader. So Moses exhorts them. Then he has a song in there. Then he blesses them. And then chapter 34 is about his death. So who wrote chapter 34? And who's going to take over after Moses? Joshua. So there's a passing of the power there in that last section. Okay, we've got a couple minutes. Let's just look at, we've already looked at chapter 5. That's the Ten Commandments, also called the Decalogue or Decalogue. Ten laws. Chapter 6, the Shema. The Shema is what you're supposed to teach your children about God in Israel. And this is carried over into the New Testament. Bring your children up in the Lord, right? Fathers, don't what? exasperate your children, but bring them up in the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. That's in the Old Testament. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord had God has commanded me to teach you. 6, 4, skipping down. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That Jesus says that. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. He's talking metaphorically here. Later, the Pharisees would start putting little boxes with Scripture on their arms, on their forehead. But he's talking metaphorically. You just need to have Scripture always in your presence, always in your mind. Live it out. Teach your children. You shall write them on the doorpost. I mean, it needs to be something that's in your house, that you're clearly following God when people come into your house. They know that. Then he goes on to talk about how it's, it's going to be a blessing if you do that. So that's called the Shema. Jewish people still pray that prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's, that's a common everyday prayer for them. They're supposed to teach their children that. We're supposed to teach our children about God. Um, chapter 28, uh, 18, sorry, I got a combined line there. 18 is against witchcraft. And then uh, also talks about a coming prophet greater than Moses. 28 is about blessings and cursings. You do these things, you're my people now. You obey, things are going to go good for you. I'm going to bless you. As Christians, we obey. Doesn't mean we're going to have a perfect life, but it means God's going to bless us. He's with us. If we disobey, what happens? Well, you disobey in that day, cursings, disobey as a Christian, discipline. Not cursings, but discipline. 32 is the Song of Moses. 34 is the Death of Moses. Okay, we'll pick up next week on key passages. These are really key passages. And then uh, we'll get into key people, helpful resources, and selected interpretive problems. If you have questions, you can ask me after class. Lord, we, uh, we love the book of Deuteronomy. It's so important. The New Testament refers so much to it. We need... We need to know it, Lord. Help us to know it. Help us to love it. I pray that we would teach these things to our children, that we would teach these things in our church, that we would know the Bible as best we can, Lord. Spend our life in this book. I pray that you would put that upon our hearts. Amen.